are listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Iman Lau, and I'm the communications officer at the Institute. Today, I'm joined by Alvin Chung and Sharon Holm to discuss what has been going on in Hong Kong and to give you the latest updates on where Hong Kong stands now. Welcome to the podcast, Alvin and Sharon. Thanks for having us. First, let's uh, start with you telling us a little bit about yourself. So let's start with Sharon. I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up in the U.S. and I am trained as an American lawyer, but my practice for the last 20 years is in international human rights law. So my organization, Human Rights in China, has had a presence in Hong Kong before handover since 1996. And since then, our role has gradually evolved and then sped up as developments on the ground really took very concerning turns in terms of rights and rule of law and the prospects for the democratic movement. So increasingly, we have been active and we work from within an international human rights framework. So that means that we are looking at all of the ways in which we can support the civic space on the ground and the groups and the individuals who are just simply exercising their rights, which are protected under domestic law and also under the international obligations of the central government and also of the SAR government. So, you know, we really are approaching Hong Kong and what we can do there from trying to hold the line on the principles, the standards, the norms and the rights that Hong Kong people have. My background is not nearly as illustrious as Sharon's and frankly, her self-introduction does her a disservice. I am a Canadian citizen, born in Hong Kong, and naturalized at a very young age. I then grew up mostly in Hong Kong, had a first career there as a barrister, then moved to academia starting in 2013. I finished a doctoral dissertation on law and autocracy at NYU last year. And I am currently partway through a postdoc at McGill, where I'm also working on law and autocracy. Great. Amazing. Well, and for our listeners as well, just to give a bit of background, you actually have three Hong Kongers on this podcast. I myself am a Canadian-born Hong Konger. So this is an issue near and dear to our hearts. And this week has been a busy week for Hong Kong. Beijing has passed electoral reforms, which means that with these reforms in Hong Kong, Hong Kong's elections, which had a certain degree of autonomy, are now ultimately a Beijing-selected process. So where does Hong Kong stand now? And what are the implications moving forward? Let's start with the word reform. What Beijing has done to Hong Kong elections is reform in the same way that shooting somebody in the head is a medical intervention. It's exactly the opposite of that. I think it should be abundantly clear now, if it was not before, that Beijing and Hong Kong have been engaged in a strategy over the last several years of systematically eliminating avenues for political and civic participation. So the most recent measures are merely the end point of a campaign that began 
after the umbrella movement of 2014 at the very latest, and there's certainly a colourable argument that that began earlier. I think it's really important that Alvin begins by highlighting and calling out the use of the term reform, because I think that reflects a broader problem and challenge when we try to understand what is at stake in Hong Kong now and going forward, and that is being very careful about party speak because the whole battle of narratives that is being carried out by Beijing, and they're getting so good at taking over global social media as well as traditional media outlets and getting out their version of reality and facts and the narrative, and both through reporting in quotes and also through disinformation campaigns. So I think the first thing I would say is just asking the question, where does Hong Kong stand now? The first thing we should be thinking about is, well, how do we know? And how are we talking about it? And I want to echo Alvin's attention to let's be careful about the words we use and lest we unconsciously echo party speak or the party narrative. And it's kind of like the Chinese Beijing's use of the word democracy, calling it democracy with Chinese characteristics or human rights, human rights with Chinese characteristics. So all of these alternative party speak words, we should really say democracy with Chinese characteristics is not democracy under any system. And human rights with Chinese characteristics is also not human rights at all under international norm standards or Beijing's obligations. So I think that is a really important point to underscore when we're trying to look at the complexity of what is going on. We have to just cut through the thick authoritarian language fog. That's a very good point, as it also highlights the fact that, for example, a lot of narratives around Beijing's national security law is not around national security, but rather regime security. However, they use national security as a way to deflect any sort of accountability within the international community. What has happened in Hong Kong is not necessarily unexpected. So how does Hong Kong fit into the CCP's ambitions? And what are the lessons for the global community here? I think how Hong Kong fits into CCP ambitions, it's not a static fitting. If we go back to pre-handover and in the negotiations for the return, how Hong Kong fit then was for the central government and for the party to reassert sovereignty over Hong Kong as part of its reclaiming its national pride. It's, you know, given that Hong Kong was lost in a, uh, a war with, you know, um, uh, you know, as you all know, the history of the, you know, the Opium War. So because Hong Kong was lost in these infamous treaties, the return of Hong Kong and how Hong Kong fit was first to be part of that historical narrative that Hong Kong now is going to be taken back from the colonial rulers and back to where it belongs to the motherland. And that was early on. If we fast forward now, way, way forward, you know, we can see that after Deng Xiaoping, where it fit then was that after the handover, Deng Xiaoping thought that perhaps Hong Kong could be an example and could be a model, one country, two systems that might convince their, quote, wayward province, Taiwan, unquote, that it would convince Taiwan, you too can return to the motherland under, under a one country, two system. So the way Hong Kong fit then was to be a model so that it can convince Taiwan to also return. And we know how that worked out. So the second way it fit is that Hong Kong itself is the proverbial goose that lays the golden egg. So Hong Kong economically was supposedly important and in fact is important from an economic perspective of being the gateway when there were different stages of 
Beijing and China's economic, quote, reform. So it needed Hong Kong because Hong Kong has a rule of law and Hong Kong has a vibrant civil society and also has an exchange that I would say even today would be more trustworthy than, let's say, the Shanghai exchange. So they needed Hong Kong to be the kind of gateway for foreign capital. They had to attract capital. But today, let's start it from 2014, sort of around the Umbrella Revolution, the way that Hong Kong fit into its ambitions is that under Xi Jinping's Chinese dream, that it's really important that Hong Kong come into the fold and be part of the nationalist revival, China taking its rightful place in the world. And what that vision is, is of course Xi Jinping's vision. And that means being both Chinese in the way that it's defined by the party. And so how Hong Kong fits now is that it must be brought under control. It must be managed. It must be made forced to be loyal and it must be made patriotic. And so now, you know, how it fits in is I would say that it is a problem and that Xi Jinping must manage Hong Kong properly in the last few years. I think there has been some rumblings probably inside the party that it was mismanaged poorly and terribly. And now we've gotten all this international attention and critique and scrutiny. But the lessons is China doesn't care. And that that's a lesson from what's happening is that despite sanctions, despite statements of condemnation uh, from experts, from governments and sanctions against individuals, the lessons for the global community is number one, you have to really take seriously and believe when an authoritarian government tells you what its goals are, what its plans are, and what its ambitions are. Because Beijing long publicly announced, this is what we're going to do. Secondly, I think the lesson for the global community is, and I've been saying this, invoking Krugman, the Nobel Peace Prize winning economist, zombie ideas. The lesson is, this is truly the time and moment for the global community, and in particular, policy makers to give up on the conventional wisdom and wishful thinking that engaging with the party state, the communist party, and that economic engagement is going to result in opening of political space. A, because the party said, we'll never do that. And B, because empirically it has shown that it's just not been borne out that engaging with China economically has produced a more politically liberal state of things. So I would say those are the two main lessons. To answer the first part of the question, how does Hong Kong fit into the CCP's ambitions? My view of the CCP's current ambitions is that they want to have their cake and eat it. They want Hong Kong to be a Potemkin city with facade institutions that look just different enough that the outside world will continue to invest. But at the same time, they want Asia's self-proclaimed world city to be exempted from world scrutiny. And the most significant lesson for this, for the global community, in my view, is that in the absence of any meaningful repercussions for repeated breaches and repudiations of the Sino-British Joint Declaration, a treaty which is supposed to remain in effect until 2047, then Beijing will continue 
to push and push and push until either there is a concerted effort to push back or it gets entirely what it wants. I've written previously in Critical Asian Studies and in Lawfare about, frankly, the mass delusion of a lot of mainstream foreign policy analysts, particularly in the US, that essentially ignored the warning signs emanating from Hong Kong in favor of papering over things, downplaying the symptoms, or in some cases, outright propagation of disinformation. And we now see the consequences. As it turns out, the absence of repercussions for prior breaches is an invitation to impunity. I wanted to add to Alvin that I totally agree with Alvin saying that the international community ignored the warning signs. And I would say there were warning signs, but there were also, as I said, in terms of policy, in terms of statements, in terms of the laws, the laws that were passed uh, by uh, in the mainland, the laws themselves very much signaled that Hong Kong, the national security law would look exactly like it looks. So uh, I would say they didn't ignore it intentionally, Alvin. I don't know if you agree with me. I think that it was inconvenient to take it seriously, because if you take it seriously, the warning signs, it means you have to respond. And it would mean that the interests of, let's say, the business community, the corporate sector, and government interests, their other interests, their security interests in the region, their trade and investment interests, all of those interests would be, in their view, in some ways, uh, be jeopardized if they took seriously the warning signs or the policy statements or the laws that were being passed that clearly stated there would be no protections for people's rights, and that there would be this overreaching that we are seeing in terms of the weaponization of law. So all of that was not only predictable, but I think that all of the different sectors of the international community clearly saw it. They're not stupid, but I do think they are self-interested, and I think they made the wrong calculation and trade-off, thinking that they could continue to make that trade-off without consequences for their own interests. I think that they did not really take into a serious account the impact on Hong Kong people and on people on the mainland or on Tibetans and Uyghurs. They might have seen it, but I think the trade-off that was made with trade, investment, economic interests, and security interests. And I think that is where we are now in terms of the international community, where many of these sectors are going, wow, so this is the world, the trade-offs have created. What are we going to do now? How has it been now that we're seeing the consequences? Because in 2019, we saw the Hong Kong protests erupt. And then pretty much a year later, we saw the national security law come into play. How has that international community response been? Well, I think there were a couple of things building up then Hong Kong became the really a wake-up call because we had hundreds of Tibetans self-immolate and there wasn't really a strong enough response. We had reported over millions of ethnic Uyghurs, uh, Muslims incarcerated. So I think the camps, the insistent denial on every platform at the UN and policy circles and bilateral engagements, the denial by China that these camps even existed, notwithstanding satellite imagery. So I think these are the things that began building up and saying, how long are we going to really continue to just ignore millions in camps, the incredible 
destruction of cultural and religious linguistic rights for Tibetans and Uyghurs and through terrible abuses. So on top of that, then we had this 2019 movement, which I think suddenly showed the world this other image. And that was broadcasted so widely that the world saw in real time, a million, two million people take to the streets peacefully and really voice clearly what the aspirations of the Hong Kong people are. And I think that together was, these are the things that came together that made the international community, I think, begin to move off of its traditional conventional way of responding where we're seeing now some movement in the different ways that the international community is run. But I think it's the combination of the severity and the scope of the abuses in Tibet first and then in Xinjiang or East Turkestan, and then Hong Kong people really mobilizing and standing up, I think really caused a different insight into the struggles on the mainland and in Hong Kong for the international community. And that has informed, both inspired, as well as raised greater alarm and concern. And those two together are shaping some of the responses together with the increasingly larger community of Hong Kongers in diaspora, who are all also quite active and beginning to work on different strategies. So I think those three moving along developments is propelling, pushing, informing the different international community responses that we're beginning to see. And can I get also your thoughts on, since you're based in the US, the government of the United States response to what was going on in Hong Kong, there seemed to be a concerted effort to actually address what was happening in Hong Kong that has been indicated that will be carried on by the Biden administration. So what has that response been like from the government? So I think when we think of the U.S. government, it's good to take it apart. I think depending on the administration, I think the last administration was quite shocking for most people in the U.S. and in the world. It was just shocking at a level we had never seen of such incoherence, incompetence, and just terrifying. That was at a regime level. I think we also have to remember and recognize that in the government, it's not just the administration. There will be a whole apparatus underneath that would be at the level of both the civil servants as well as, say, below the appointed people. And from Human Rights in China's point of view, our organization, working for more than two decades with different administrations, I would say that it was quite difficult under the last administration because it was so demoralizing to the people who had worked for decades on human rights and who care deeply about the human rights and seriously democracy and development of democracy in the mainland and supporting defenders and supporting civil society groups. So I think that throughout the different administrations that we've worked with, I believe, is that at a certain level, we really feel that the people who do the work at the program level and at the policy diplomatic level struggling, you know, really have held a certain kind of continuity in line on the importance of respecting rights. So I think that has been consistent. I think under the Biden administration, you know, it's good that, you know, adults have come back on the floor. The Secretary Blinken's very measured, calm, and not thrown off interaction at the Alaska summit uh, sends out a very good message, is that when the Chinese side raises the whataboutism, look at you, look at the US, you have police violence. This kind of whataboutism, what was encouraging for many of us watching closely was Secretary Blinken's response 
which was very measured and said, yes, that's right. We all have these issues and we need to address them in an open, transparent, accountable way. And that's how a democracy deals with it. So I think that was really important. And then said, and we have our differences here. The mantra that we can engage despite our differences, I think that Secretary Blinken was saying something a little bit more nuanced, saying there are differences and these differences will have an impact. And in some cases, the differences will really result in perhaps not being able to do certain things together and that we won't be able to cooperate on certain things because we literally have radically different values, principles, and normative differences. So I think that is so far, but I still think it's too soon to tell. I think there's a lot going on domestically. The U.S. government as a whole needs to deal with. We've got the pandemic. We've got the economic and the whole problem of the economy. So all of that is very pressing domestically. I'm in a program that you can think about is, What could be the ways in which governments around the world, including the Canadian government, might respond to the Chinese government's tactics? For a particular pain point for me and Alvin, um, what are your thoughts on the Canadian government's response to Hong Kong? I would characterize the Canadian response and how it's developed as a partial shift from willful blindness. And here I agree with Sharon, it is willful blindness to mainly expressions of concern. Now, expressing concern is the, it's the thoughts and prayers of international relations. Having lived in the US, every time there's a mass shooting, certain politicians will offer thoughts and prayers, but no initiatives for meaningful change. And that's, frankly, a pretty good summary of where we are with Ottawa. We've seen a lot of expressions of concern. We have had some modest arms control sanctions, the suspension of the extradition treaty, and supposedly some measures to facilitate immigration of young and skilled workers. But so far, there have been no meaningful repercussions for anybody involved in perpetrating the years-long crackdown. A large part of that is the willful blindness. I said there was a partial shift And it is only a partial shift because there are people within Canadian academia and within foreign policy circles who are invested in the Sino-Canada relationship. And I don't necessarily mean financially. You know, people have been intellectually and emotionally invested in cultivating this relationship over decades. And Nobody wants to be told that their entire life has been wasted. I understand that. But the end result has been that we get people like Paul Evans at UBC appearing on national television and just repeating the Beijing line that the atrocities in Xinjiang, East Turkestan, whatever their legal characterization, are purely anti-terrorism. Well, no, they aren't. And I would find it very interesting for Professor Evans to try to explain how forced sterilization is in any way related to countering terrorism. And in fact, his own university maintains a vast collection of documents pertaining to Xinjiang, including governmental documents that really give the lie to these assertions. But Even in the face of what has been happening in Hong Kong, what has been happening in Tibet, what has been happening in East Turkestan, the consistent 
reaction of Canada and the West more generally has been to disregard what has been politically or economically inconvenient in certain cases to actively propagate disinformation. And I am sad to say that there are a few Canadians involved in this cottage industry. And as we've more recently seen with the responses to sanctions against individuals and institutions in the West, including Michael Chong MP, the only real changes have come when people in Canada, in the UK, in Europe, in the US suddenly realize that, in fact, they do have skin in the game. In fact, there will be repercussions for them personally if they do not push back. I wanted to say something about the Canadian government's response, and I echo Alvin that statements of concern are just not enough. And we're hearing this from activists on the ground, like, thank you for your prayers and your your statements of concern, but what we actually really need is action. One thing I think that is important of resurfacing, and that has to do with both the U.S. administration changing so we're no longer this ludicrous go-it-alone in a world that's completely interrelated, but I think we're going back to, and it's the importance for the Canadian government as well, that we're going back to the importance of joint multilateral action. It has to be joint, it has to be coordinated, and that's when it could have some kind of impact in terms of action. So Canada, not only issuing its own individual statements, but issuing statements with the US and with the UK and with other Commonwealth countries, Australia and New Zealand, really these joint statements and the general erosion of rights, these are important as joint statements because it does show important to be uh, acting in concert. Democratic governments must act together. The response to that is right now Beijing saying you can't follow the imperialist U.S. and that the U.S. can't be bullying everybody into following it, which of course is laughable when China's very prominent carrot and stick approach in terms of Belt and Road, how it gets everyone to either through a carrot or a stick, toe the line in terms of Beijing's positions on the international front, or the way that China very clearly works with the group that is the LMCs, the like-minded countries, Russia, China, Pakistan, Vietnam, all the friendly good countries. So they have no problems acting as a like-minded group, signing letters, joint statements to the UN, voicing their concerns about all sorts of things and signing it as like-minded group. This needs to be countered and developed. And I hope that Canada and other countries in the face of any criticism of them ganging up on China, calmly measured say, really, your point being, I think that would be really important multilateral initiatives by different democratic governments that I know that we were part of, and that totally shut down uh, primarily due to threats by China that these were unfriendly gatherings. So I think this is a moment when, in the face of these renewed threats, uh, that Western democracy and Western democratic governments really need to just look at those threats and say, really, they have to stand firm on principled multilateral joint action. That's what we're hoping for. I think now the question that many Hong Kongers are grappling with is what is an effective way of supporting Hong Kongers' struggle to preserve rights and democracy in Hong Kong? 
I think that on the ground, you see the arrests, we see the convictions of prominent lawyers and democracy uh, figures today, Martin Lee, Margaret Eng, Jimmy Lai, you know, media figures. So we see that, but what we don't see, but which is indeed still happening, is that yes, many, many sectors of Hong Kong people, they're not leaving. The 7.4 million people are not applying for either a BNO that they're not qualifying for, or they're all not trying to get political asylum in Canada or the US. So A, it's not an option for everyone. And B, and for some, even if it is an option, they're choosing to stay for various reasons, personal and reasons of political, whatever. And so I think that's important. And even for the people who have left, painfully, chosen to leave. They haven't left left. And I think that we need to recognize that where they are now dispersed throughout different parts of the world, this diasporic community is really quite different than I would say the diasporic community that formed, say, after 89 in the mainland, the 1989 democracy movement. This is a very interesting, different kind of communities, plural, that is shaping up. And this diasporic community, of which I would like to counter myself and pulling Alvin and Ewan as well, we belong to this, is that the new the people who have just come out recently really maintain ties, even though they're not too public. They are staying in touch with what is going on. And in terms of people on the ground, I actually think in all the different sectors, there are efforts that we can see and some that we've actually supported and participated in where conversations continue, where very small bite-sized efforts are still going forward. And that's because it's not over until it's over and it's not over. I would caution that first. We're not quite at the end. And this kind of Hong Kong's democracy movement and Hong Kong's democracy is fragile, but the survival of democracy, it's always fragile. It's always at risk. It can go backwards. A democracy that respects the rights of all the people is something that is a constant struggle. And so in many ways, we get the democracy we're willing to fight for. Hong Kong is not unique. It's just in a situation vis-a-vis what looks like, and indeed in some ways, is a very strong authoritarian government. But I would say looks like because the other side of the authoritarian coin is that it is not either monolithic or all powerful. And 2047 is is still some way off. I wouldn't call it too soon about the present or the future of democracy in Hong Kong. And the reason, the main reason is, I don't think we should assume anything about the future survival of Xi Jinping or the party in its current formulation. I am one of the advisors to a new journal, Flow. It's Flow in English, primarily in Chinese, and that many of these young activists, activist leaders, thought leaders uh, abroad have launched. And the first issue came out just recently, but my preface is in English for non-Chinese reading audience. And I introduce all the other pieces. I sort of highlight their themes and main points and the whole enterprise. Uh, The main thing that's important about that is that it is an effort to create space so that different views can be debated. Another way to think of it is 
They're practicing democracy. So they are building their own democratic skill sets. They are learning how to work together. They're learning how to build something. They're learning how to listen to different voices. They listen to criticism. They listen to suggestions, which I can say is a lot more than the party does. So I think that they're not only just working and thinking, they're actually creating. But I think the magazine is one kind of concrete effort, but there are many other efforts as well. Yes, there is a charter that members of the Hong Kong diaspora can sign, and the Hong Kong government's immediate reaction to its release was to threaten to sick the national security law on everybody, which, to my mind, underscores precisely why the charter was necessary in the first place. But I would agree that one of the long-term tasks of the diaspora is to keep a distinct Hong Kong political and cultural identity alive, because I am not exactly betting on medical science coming across the secret to immortality. And so at at some point, there will be a change in political leadership. And the key is to keep a community of Hong Kongers going, at least until that point. So, Alvin, I'm so glad to hear you sounding hopeful even, if I may say. I think one really concrete reason that I believe nothing is inevitable, that Xi Jinping's hold on power and his vision of making of himself as more Mao than Mao, and trying to really launch and and unleash this cultural revolution, remaking human nature, Chinese nationalist humans in an image that he is going to really impose. But his hold on power really relies on the future of China's economy. And that's where there are such major structural weaknesses, as well as a demographic crisis that has already exploded so that you know that with an aging population, but with the one-child population policy, they now have this huge base of older people that need to be supported, but not enough young people to be working to support that base. So I think that is going to absolutely have a major impact on the economy, which will then have an impact on the party's legitimacy and ability to hold on to power. So this is all in the works already, and I suspect it will begin to be much more obvious well before 2047. So this really underscores why we need to be listening to the voices on the ground still inside Hong Kong and supporting them. And it doesn't need to be public. It doesn't need to be high profile, but we need to be supporting those voices and efforts in those communities. For the diaspora community, I totally agree with Alan. This is why we use this time now to build the capacity to hold on to the building and contesting and figuring out the identities abroad and what it means. And I think that's really opening up broader important questions of solidarity between movements, as well as learning outside of a narrow box or inside of a narrow experience of when the movement was really focused only on Hong Kong. And I think that is a complex question because there still remain voices that say the Hong Kong movement is about Hong Kong. We cannot be involved in all those other movements. My only point is 
that it's not about what is a better position. My only point is that this is a critical movement of democracy building to have to tackle those very questions of citizenship, of belonging to different communities, and of defining our own. And I think those are just really encouraging to me to see, particularly the young people that are out in diaspora, really tackling these questions with real thoughtfulness and struggling. And I don't hear it as rhetorical or dogmatic. I really am very encouraged by the complexity of their struggles. My final question for today will be, what do you miss the most about Hong Kong? And I can give you my answer to this, which is, I don't have a car, so I really, really miss the MTR. I also really miss the double-decker buses where I got to sit at the very front and watch how close we could get to the bus in front of us and then go downstairs to see the driver playing Candy Crush on their iPad. (laughs) (laughs) You make me cry. I miss so much. I miss so much. I miss my colleagues, my students there, because I was teaching at HKU in 2019. I'm in touch with them, but I miss being able to have a meal uh, at a yellow restaurant, of course. I miss my ability to wander. I miss all my local street vendors that I actually love just visiting and talking to. I miss all of those connections. I miss Hong Kong Lai Ta, a serious Hong Kong Lai Ta, not like a powdered mix I get here. I miss street food. I miss I miss all of that, but I, I miss the people that I would ha- have in my life in a more direct way when I'm there. That I miss them the most. It is difficult to pick the one thing, but I think for me in particular, having grown up in Hong Kong, having been present during the change of sovereignty and having had my first career there, it would have to be the people I came to know during my time in Hong Kong including many good friends and current and former colleagues, many of whom are now incarcerated. And not only do I not expect to be able to return, but the very fact that I know some of them may implicate some of them further. And I think that's a particularly troubling loss for me personally. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, to share your insights, to share your thoughts, and to also share um, your love for Hong Kong. And I thank you for your advocacy and your continued work in this space. And um, I'll just say these two words, add oil. Yes, Gaia.